Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the I Love Labs podcast. I'm Sally Sykes, your functional medicine health coach. And today we have a very special guest joining us. I'm thrilled to introduce Dr. Gabriela Pichardo, whose expertise has transformed lives through her passion for holistic health. Dr. Pichardo is board certified in internal medicine as well as integrative medicine. Originally from the Dominican Republic, she received her formal training in integrative medicine through the Academy of Integrative Health and Medicine Fellowship. She completed her internal medicine residency at Louisiana State University and has been practicing medicine since 2012. She moved to Texas with her family in 2015 and now practices with Resilient Health Austin, one of the premier functional medicine practices here in beautiful Austin, Texas. And I can say that because I'm a patient there. Previously, Dr. Pichardo was the medical director for the primary care department at Baylor Scott and White in Round Rock, Texas. She is a member of the American College of Physicians, the Texas Medical Association, the Hispanic Physicians Association of Austin, the Institute for Functional Medicine, and the International Lyme and Associated Diseases Society. And if that isn't enough, she's also a mentor for the National Hispanic Health Foundation and for the Academy of Integrative Health and Medicine Fellowship. Dr. Bichardo, as you can tell, has a wealth of information to share with us on the podcast today, not only about how she helps her patients find and treat the root causes of disease, but also about her own personal health journey, which I think you're going to find makes her one of the most empathetic physicians you'll ever meet. Her approach to care is to care for patients from the inside out instead of just managing symptoms without addressing the underlying cause. And one unique tool we're going to talk to her about that she has through her at her disposal at Resilient Health is medical genomics. And she's going to explain to us what that means through something called Intellex DNA. And this provides an even more personalized approach for her patients to the treatment and prevention of disease. She loves to call herself a medical detective, and that is exactly what functional medicine is all about. And no one is better at this than Dr. Pichardo. The challenge of uncovering medical mysteries has driven her passion for functional medicine, especially as she has begun managing and treating patients suffering from mold illness, chronic Lyme disease, and other co-infections. So you guys out there dealing with those, pay attention, give her a call. Welcome, Dr. Pichardo. Thank you so much for being here the day after Thanksgiving. And it's just such an honor to have you here today. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me, Sally. Of course, when you send the invite, I'm like, I have to... That make do this talk with with Sally and kind of spread the word and what you're doing is fantastic with this podcast and kind of bringing more awareness about functional medicine and kind of getting to the root cause of uh, medical conditions. So it's fantastic. Thanks for having me. It makes such a difference in lives. I mean, if people who are watching this on YouTube versus listening on on the podcasts. I am a different person at 50 than I was when I first came to you guys, maybe seven years ago. It is is just life-changing to have this, um, but we want to hear about you. Uh, why don't we start to your journey of how you got to be a physician? I'm fascinated because you grew up in the Dominican Republic. Both of your parents, including your mother, both physicians. That's right. Uh, I have my my mom. Uh, it's a retired, I guess, almost retiring nephrologist. Uh, and my father is a retired cardiologist. So it's kind of interesting growing up in a household with two prominent doctors that are well known uh, in my country. And it was kind of like big shoes to fill. Uh, I think I was actually wanting to be a doctor ever since I was a child. I mean, they were bringing me to their clinic or to their hospital rounds because 
they didn't have somebody to probably leave me with. I was like five, six years old when I started to say, I want to become a doctor. You know, when you see your parents wearing the lab coat, I was seeing them like superheroes, Wonder Woman. I want to wear that lab coat one day and feel like I'm making a difference. I had great, you know, examples with my mom and dad. My mom also, she was the very first woman nephrologist in Dominican Republic. And I, That's yeah. an incredible accomplishment. Yes, it is. It is. They always supported me. Uh, in the beginning, they were like, are you sure about this, Gabriela? I'm like, yes, it's my dream. And then when they found out that I actually wanted to come to the U.S. to do my residency training, or, you know, they were ecstatic. Wow, that is incredible. My mom had a very difficult uh, upbringing. They wanted her to get married to somebody wealthy at a very young age. But my my mother was like, you know, I really want to be a doctor. Um, and my grandfather, I'm glad that he supported her because it was very difficult back then. They were kind of expecting during that time for, you know, women to be catering to their spouse, to their husband and having babies and being a homemaker and that's it for you. But she wanted more. And I'm, and I'm, and that's something that I always admire from, from her. That is so great. I'm so glad she had that support from her father. So, okay. So you get into medicine, right? When, when people decide they want to be a doctor and go to, to medical school, like as far as I know, there is no sort of functional medicine, medicine school. Like it's all conventional medicine to begin with, right? Pretty much, pretty much. Was that the route you went first and then went, got into functional medicine or? Yeah, I pretty much, my, my training was completely conventional. So I wish back then I would have actually started on something like that. So I did pretty much a little bit over six years of medical school in my country. And then I moved to Louisiana when I got accepted in the residency program. I'm actually very happy that I had that experience. And through that, I went in into practicing just pure primary care, you know, your conventional seeing patients in the clinic, in and out, short visits. I got a chance to do rounds, nursing home, um, rounds in hospital, which was rough, especially when I became pregnant, but I made it through. Um, and then it wasn't until probably back in 2015, 2016, that I got into the whole holistic integrative medicine um, world. I was going through a very difficult time back then, uh, going through divorce. I was struggling with burnout. First, I was just working as a primary care doctor, and then they gave me the position about being medical director for the primary care clinic in Baylor Scott and White. And I was, I was really burnt out completely. It wasn't until somebody mentioned to me about this integrative medicine conference and I, something kind of changed in me when I went to that conference. I'm like, wow, there is a whole new world. I can actually do more stuff for my patients than just, you know, writing a prescription because it was an actual gynecologist that she did in this kind of um, in group setting forest bathing, which we call it Shiringoku in, in Japanese because it's actually kind of like you're meditating, kind of soaking in the forest and the greens. And I was like actually hugging trees and walking barefoot 
But it was such an eye-opening experience because we got to sit down in a circle in the ground. And I was with like maybe 20 more strangers. And we just start sharing our experience. And I had like a breakthrough. I actually started crying and talking about the things that I've been struggling with, plus having a toddler and getting separated. I kind of realized like, I'm also burned out from my work. Like, this is not, this is not what I want. And I decided to do the fellowship. And I think with this group of, this community, this newfound community, this group of people that were strangers, but we connected. It was almost therapeutic for me. By me going into the fellowship, I feel like it truly saved my life um, because it changed my my personal life, it changed my work life. Um, and it actually opened the doors of doing so much of what I'm doing now, actually, and, and kind of opening the doors for doing, learning more about functional medicine. I can see the change and I can see the positive effects that, you know, integrated medicine, functional medicine has had even with my patients. That's amazing. Gabby, I don't even know this, but it's, I'm listening to your story. I went through a divorce a few years ago. My health was not great. And the first thing I did when I separated was sign up for Functional Medicine Coaching Academy, which is the, you know, one certified program that is, you know, approved of by the Institute for Functional Medicine. And what you're talking about, the group of people who tend to be attracted to those programs. And it sounds like, you know, for you, the MD side, me, the coaching side, that program was not only educational for me and obviously helpful in my coaching practice. But being in those small groups um, with those people who are also interested in healing from the inside out themselves and their coaching clients was so incredibly healing in a way for me during that time of my divorce that I didn't expect either. I thought I'm just getting a certification so I can get a job and get make somebody. Da, da, da. Um, I really resonate with what you were just saying about completely life, completely life-changing you know you get into something trying to think that you're gonna help the others right right just kind of better yourself but in another in another way it actually change you as well, part of functional medicine right we have to put on our own masks first especially my female coaching clients like we we can't help others unless we heal ourselves first i love that about functional medicine definitely the the wounded healer the wounded, right, pain to purpose uh, journey. It's, it's a, you know, it's sort of cliche, but it's cliche for a reason. I found resilient health through my own, you know, pain to purpose journey. I wasn't getting any help from, from anyone. I was, you know, on birth control. No one told me about the side effects of that. My thyroid was completely in the tank. I was copper toxic. You guys uncovered that due to birth control, um, you know, which is a, a risk for cognitive decline. My father died of dementia. That was my primary issue that I was concerned about. Um, nobody had talked to me about perimenopause or hormones or thyroid function. My TSH was like a five or a six. I mean, and they were like, ah, oh, it's normal. And I was like, yeah. but I can't get out of bed, you know? Right. So like life changing. What I love is that, you know, a lot of people think that functional medicine, the way of doing that and finding, treating the root cause is so new. And actually, if you go back far enough in the practice of medicine, right, right, way, way back, <laughs> like, that's how originally medicine was practiced, right? Well, what yeah, kind of it's interesting that you say that because some of the stuff that I have learned, especially when we did a lot into herbals as part of my training, um, it was things that kind of reminded me of back home. 
or like, nice. you know, like um, cures, like home type of home remedies that your it was passed on from generation to generation or from like your your grandma. I feel like I've always have had like an open mind about new therapies, uh, especially when I was working in the primary care, when I was like with Baylor Scott and White, I had a bunch of patients coming in and bringing me, you know, all these supplements and herbs. And I was like, no, that, that won't do anything. But then I was like, you know what? I do notice that my patient's getting better. I should probably look into this where unfortunately there's certain group of doctors that are very skeptical or they're like, they automatically said like, no, that's not, that's not true or that's not good. But I'm like, have you really look into it? Did you really look into the research? Have you even looked what is out there from other cultures, from other countries? So I feel like we need to be medical doctors, you know, any kind of healthcare practitioner. We need to be more open in the sense of like, not just dismissing right away. Um, yeah, that won't work or be kind of negative. Just look into it, analyze it. And that's often what I do with my patients. Sometimes they bring me really interesting kind of therapies and things like that that are out there. So I usually do my due diligence and kind of research about it and try to find out. And then I come and make a decision with my patient. I don't have an authority type of figure, which I'm like, you're going to do this, that's it, and shove them out the door. We do have a good mutual conversation and- Their decision-making. Exactly. Kind of reviewing the pros and cons. So that's usually what I try to do, even right now, obviously at Resilient Health. That's why practicing integrated medicine, we're actually able to spend more time in our practice with the patients because I was like dealing- with very sick patients before, and they had a laundry list of things, including medication. And I was just able to see them for like 10 minutes or 15 minutes. And even they were like, but what, what should I eat when you diagnose somebody with diabetes? And you're like, well, just start taking this and we'll leave it for the next visit. You cannot do good medicine in such a short amount of time. That is not realistic. No, we need no. to spend time with our patients. Yes. And you know, we're as we get into that, I'd love for for the people who are listening who may be new to functional medicine, I would love for you to describe the experience a patient has when they come into a visit with you, for example, because it's going to be so different, right? From what they're used to seeing, because you just described it, right? It's seven to 15 minutes. It's in, it's out. It's, you know, diagnose, adios, right? Like, And so we, you know, when someone comes to you, talk a little bit about the medical intake that you do and how in functional medicine, that's pretty extensive and different. We have our all the patients that are, you know, new patients coming in for their initial visit. We try for them to fill out like our new patient questionnaire. And before their appointment, I usually try for them to please submit that at least a week before their appointment. We try to kind of dig deep into their diet, environmental exposure, past medical history, family history, social history, um, where they lived before, what is their stress level, 
spiritual belief. You know, we try to gather as much detail as possible. Our visit routinely is about, about an hour long, hour and a half at the most. And I always try to have patients to please submit their past results. Because oftentimes I've had patients that they bring in the result like, hey, yeah, my 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 PCP told me that the B12 was fine. But I'm like, okay, but what was the actual level? Was and it optimal? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Was it optimal? And and they were like, yeah, they said it was fine. And then when I look back, it was like 300. And I'm like, no, that's not truly optimal. Uh, or the vitamin D oh. or the hormones. Uh, it's amazing how many, how much like I picked up just by reviewing their labs that they were told that they were normal. And I'm like, yeah, it might be normal within the lab and every lab has this different reference. Exactly. But based on their research and what we've known, for example, about the research around the B12 for optimal co cognition and brain health, we want to keep it between 500 up to 2000. So I try to discuss with them Yes, exactly. Because we do, we do also the Bredesen protocol and that's, I train as well with the Bredesen protocol. That's how I found resilient was. Yeah. Yep. yeah. I love it. So I, 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 you are listening. That's Dr. Dale Bredesen and his book is the end of Alzheimer's program. Um, and it's, it's really incredible. And he has practitioners who've been trained um, all over the country and resilient health is one of them. If you're looking for help in preventing Alzheimer's. So Sometimes some patients, they ask me, um, you know, you ask me things that they never asked me before. And I even want to ask about how is the situation in your home and with your family? Um, did you travel? Did you got an infection while you were traveling? What, how's your gut? How you were as a kid? Did they have to bring you to the um, to the doctor so often? Were you given so much antibiotics? So I try to get as much information as I can. And then I usually give them um, a summary of everything that we talked about, the points, their concerns, uh, their things that we perhaps would want to optimize. Certain labs that, for example, they didn't do, and, and you've probably seen this as well. Like, for example, you have people having just DSH, but they haven't done the full thyroid panel. You don't know what That's their T3 level is or the reverse T3. Uh, have they had any antibodies done for their thyroid? Like I have so many people, they're like, yeah, I have hypothyroidism. And I'm like, okay, have you done the antibodies for uh, checking for autoimmune? And they don't usually know. And they don't, and conventional medicine, they don't even believe that's treatable. Whereas, you know, we've seen, I mean, you take them off gluten and dairy, sometimes cow's dairy, exactly. and you can see that go into remission. Yeah. Like, and I, I, it up. It's so fun to see it because I have some patients like, now some patients opt to do the genomics, which I know we're going to talk a little bit about it, but um, which based on that, I can definitely tell them, okay, you have to be gluten-free. Like there's not an option. Uh, but for some patients that, for example, they're like, haven't done the genomics, and I do see that they have antibodies and autoimmune disease, it's so amazing when you put them on gluten-free and you retest them a couple of months later, how you can see their antibodies normal. Or it's amazing. And it's, it's amazing. And they even said to me, I feel better. My skin is clearer. I'm not so bloated. I'm actually losing weight. So many benefits. Mood issues too. Mood and cognition is huge. Yeah. With the autoimmune, the inflammation that comes from that. I've really noticed that in my, my coaching clients when they go off gluten. 
So in the end, if you join a practice, this is how it's going to be. This is my first initial recommendation in terms of lab tests, any potential imaging. And then we kind of try to work, kind of map it out how we're going to work together because usually our patients join for a year. I think that what is something unique to resilient health is that we work and function as their primary care doctor in the sense that I'm doing my, all my, for my female patients, for example, their women's health eval, like their physical, if we need to do the pap smear, I've done skin biopsies, I've done stitches on a patient that cut themselves. So we do everything. We are actually on call, uh, myself and uh, the three other doctors. And we actually kind of take turns. So if anything happens, the patients know that they have us and we can actually help them. And I've been actually in the middle of phone calls between getting a patient in to be evaluated and being admitted in the ER on a weekend. But I enjoy what I do and I prefer for my patients to let me know or contact me than me finding out that something happened and then things get missed or something wasn't done the, the right way. I've never been so grateful to be a resilient health patient as during when COVID started that um, March of 2020, I remember just, we were just in lockdown and I didn't know how to protect my family. And I called Dr. Hausman Cohen. I was able to get her on the phone, right? And she was able to give me some really amazing measured advice where I wasn't scared. She told me about black elderberry for prevention. She told me about some of these herbal antivirals. You guys had a really great sheet. You probably still do about COVID prevention. Um, and then what to do when I finally did get COVID because I didn't get it forever until this last spring. I don't even know if I've told you guys this. Um, so I got COVID, went away, it came back, um, eventually got better, but I was due for labs kind of in the middle of when I had COVID. And I was kind of curious as to what my labs would be like platelets, inflammatory markers, that kind of thing. But you guys had me on as I was healing um, a bunch of anti-inflammatory supplements like pro-resolving mediators and pycnogenol and something else. I can't remember, there were several. And I was doing them as I was told um, because to prevent basically long COVID, the sort of that cytokine storm, that over-inflammation and damage to tissues. So I've always had a homocysteine right at seven. We want it kind of below seven, right? And then my HSCRP or high sensitivity C-reactive protein for you guys listening out there is another inflammatory marker. We want that below 0 0.9. Mine all has was always around 0.9. I literally went in for labs when I had COVID essentially, but I was on these anti-inflammatory, this kind of protocol y'all had me on to heal. My HSCRP was 0 0.3 and wow. my homocysteine was like a four. Like I'd never in my life have I seen that during COVID. And I never lost my taste or smell. I don't have any symptoms of long COVID. I have full, amazing cognition. I fully recovered. Um, and I just think there are just so many little things. Sometimes when you are looking at, you know, hiring a new doctor and thinking about, well, I want this to be covered by insurance, or this is too expensive to go through the functional medicine route. And I just think about things like that, where what is the price I would have paid not to be working? with Correct. a functional medicine practitioner who knows the difference between normal and optimal ranges, who is not just treating my type two diabetes with insulin, right? Who's instead advising me to lower my carb intake, that I am not carb tolerant. And also that's good for my brain, given my family history, right? Being honest with me, helping me replace my hormones judiciously during perimenopause, optimizing my thyroid function. What, how much time 
what I have lost in my life, how much joy, how much time with my loved ones. I don't make any money from recommending you guys. I have a personal experience with you guys that it has been extremely positive for me. Um, and so I'm just sharing my personal experience. Um, but there are amazing functional medicine practitioners out there um, who have all kinds of different specialties too. And along those lines, I really would love to hear about your specialty in Lyme and tick-borne illness. And I just, it was always just, it seemed so complex and so difficult. And there just seemed to be a lot of medical gaslighting of those patients going in. Yeah. And so when I read you were a Lyme literate doctor, I know that means so much to the patients who were dealing with these issues. And I wondered if you could kind of explain what that is and sort of when someone comes to you, what are the symptoms they have and what are the tests that you like to run? Because this is the I Love Labs podcast. So we do love, we love testing and diagnostics and data. Um, can you talk about that? Yes, of course. So it's interesting how I got into the whole Lyme disease and co-infection. It was actually because probably around a year and a half ago, I started to get some of these kind of interesting cases where we were kind of still working with them doing medical genomics and then they just were not getting any better. So I'm like, there's something else going on here. So I actually decided to join the ILADS, uh, which is International for Lyme Disease and Association and other uh, obviously co-infections, uh, where just to kind of get the foundation for learning more about Lyme. And through them, I got into having a mentor, um, which I had started shadowing Dr. Amy Offit, who's off in Marble Falls, and she has been the president uh, for the ILATS. And uh, I also did my mentorship also with Dr. Ebony Cornish out of Dr. Amen's clinic. Wow. Uh, she's actually currently the functional medicine director, and she's fantastic. So I got a chance to learn quite a lot by these prominent figures. I, I do have to say it is complicated <laughs> because yeah. you really have to be very detailed with the uh, taking the history because the reality is that when you're actually diagnosing these type of conditions, it is a lot doing by clinical diagnosis and then you have the labs to support it, to okay. support your diagnosis. And the main reason is because there are so many people like with Lyme disease, for example, they have different spectrum, meaning from significant, severe manifestation and, and prop because of so many years that was not diagnosed of Lyme disease to people that are just having some milder symptoms. So sometimes you do can get a person that might be seronegative, which means that oftentimes when you're doing the antibody testing, they may actually be negative, but it's because they're so sick, their immune system is not strong to actually mount the antibody response that you're looking for. Wow. So then times when you start treating these patients, they start getting better. You start to work on the detox. Like I had this male patient that he started seeing me. His main concerns was the fatigue, the joint pain. He's in his early forties, but also he was having a lot of air hunger and also thirst, which he, he was like, yeah, I was, I'm drinking two or three gallons in a day. I'm like, wow, wait, hold on. That's not normal. There's something going on. I'm like, Oh, does he have diabetes insipidus, which is a condition that kind of affects the antidiuretic hormones in our brain and can make you have that excess thirst. And I found now that also he had had heavy metals. So once we start working on the heavy metals detox, 
he started getting a little bit better. I, since I was doing my whole eyelash training, I have found out this pretty good, which has been validated, it's actually in PubMed, uh, by Dr. Horowitz, who is a prominent figure and has teach many, many doctors about Lyme disease and treating like over 20, 30 years treating Lyme disease. Um, and he's actually in Hudson Valley uh, up north. And he did this kind of screening tool, which a lot of the Lyme literate doctors were using. And I'm like, let me try this. Uh, because it was a little bit better, but not all the way. So I'm like, this is not just mercury poisoning and, and you know, mercury was already out of his system. So when he did the screening, he actually started sending me an email over the weekend, like, wow, Dr. Bichardo, I did not know, but a lot of other questions that are from this questionnaire uh, that, that I was giving him, it kind of opened my, my mind that, oh yeah, I did have this problem. He mm -hmm. said that he had a tick that was embedded in his scalp for days that his parents found out that he also developed the rash. He was kind of grew up in the country outdoor. So he was always an outdoor kid. So what's interesting about this horror screening is that it can give you like an estimate scoring. Usually people that are would be like more than 43, 46, there is some presumption that there could be uh, Lyme or co-infection. And when I, when I mention about co-infection is uh, sometimes with a tick bite, we're not just seeing Lyme, which is by Borrelia burgdorferi. There's also tick-borne relapsing fever. There's also Babesia. There's also uh, Bartonella. And depending on which part of the country you live, especially like here in the US, there could be one that it might be more prominent than the other. Okay. So um, in his case, he actually um, did end up having Lyme, Babesia, I believe the species that he had was probably Babesia docoli, um, which we have to use a different test for that. And I'll get a little bit into the test in a minute, uh, Bartonellosis. So then we're like, okay, what are we doing with this? <laughs> and we did a little bit of herbal, ended up doing antibiotics, which I do see much more improvement on a lot of my patients when I do the antibiotics and herbal combination. So that's been kind of like my preference. And then I did a training with Dr. Horowitz mm. and I found out about his Dapsone protocol. He's like the very, one of the very few doctors that we have in this world, in the Lyme litter world, for example, that has done so much in research. Uh, and when I started doing the Dapsone protocol on my patients, it's been like night and day. What uh, was the name of the protocol again? Could you Dapsone. spell it? Dapsone is, uh, D as in dad, A P S O N E. Dapsone protocol. Yes. Well, people will be writing that down. Yeah. It's actually a well-known like anti-malarial. It does come. It's not an easy protocol. Like I do have to sit with the patient telling them the pros and cons, the potential side effects. I do have to see them every two weeks to a month type okay. of visit with pertinent labs, especially to kind of monitor the potential side effects because it can cause some um, drops in your red blood cell count, like anemia. Uh, but this has been the thing that has actually truly worked. There are so many things that can be done when somebody comes in with Lyme disease or vector-borne illness because it always depends on 
what are they having? If they're having mold illness, you want to take care of the mold, which is uh, what I've done for some of my patients that I've discovered that they have Lyme and Bart. Even if I start on any treatment, herbals, antibiotic, whichever, and they're not getting any better, I want to check for mold because mm -hmm. that's probably the number one that oftentimes when I manage that and they get clear, they feel much better and they're able to tolerate the treatment and do better with the treatment. But also wow. if they have any other um, potential, let's say bad gut issues, parasitic infection, mast cell activation, those kind of things, you want to get it under control because these patients can get very ill and react much more significant, especially with my mast cell patients when you actually start them on any treatment. Yeah. So, it's like a bucket of inflammation, right? If they're already exactly. so inflamed, it's like you got to take out some of the other underlying causes to even get at the, the, the one that's really bothering them so they don't, they can tolerate it. Right. right. And when, it, and when it comes to testing, once I get them to do that screening, which obviously on, on the case of my patient, it was like about a 70, the, what I was, wow. so that's pretty high. Um, the testing of my test of choice that I've used and for many other uh, Lyme disease doctors has been Igenics. Um, I don't have any affiliation with them. We right just now. use what works. <laughs> but it's actually what's been um, their sensitivity, especially for the immunoblot testing that they have for Lyme, it's like over 93%. So it's wow. actually what's the best in terms of testing is that they're also able to do other type of Borrelia species as mm. like the tick-borne relapsing fever ones, which actually we don't have anything like that on our on on like conventional lab testing. So that's not LabCorp, Quest, CPL. We can't. Right, right. They do have for like Quest has for like Borrelia miyamotoi, which is one that causes the tick-borne relapsing fever. But in general, these tests are not all that great. So I always try to say, well, based on your symptoms based on your horrible screening, I honestly can make a judgment that call that you do have this. We can proceed and do the lab testing. This is what I would prefer. This is the possible cause. And then these are the other labs that we have out there. Cause I have patients coming back saying, well, why don't we do a lab on Quest or CPL? I'm like, well, unfortunately theirs, if we find it that it's positive, then great, we can go with it. But even if it's negative, I'm not really gonna trust it. Um, because they even have done a study where out of 200 people, it missed 88 patients. Wow. That's actually, to me, that's kind of significant. You can have a lot more like false negative mm -hmm. than actually false positive with these type of testing. So that's why usually, yeah, sometimes I've used like on my standard of labs, when they come in for that initial visit, I, when I check, you know, their hormones, their, you know, regular labs, right? Arrow, you name it. I would also probably attach the labs that are for like um, checking for the antibodies for like Lyme and other co-infections. I like to check for like mycoplasma, tularemia, those kind of things that sometimes we use labs to actually check for this. Yeah. Um, and even when I've seen some of these patients that they're probably tularemia, mycoplasma, brucella, um, they've been actually positive. Um, I start suspecting 
you could have a, a vector borne disease. So I may have to test you for Lyme disease and other co-infections. So I would probably recommend the Igenix. Mm. So we make the decision. The good thing about Igenix also is that they are um, covered with Medicare. So oh. if, it's, if it's a lab that fits the standard for Medicare and Medicare is covering, it is that's a good sign. And that tells you that it's it, it's valid, right? That's usually like my go-to. There are other labs that are actually more affordable. They're actually also good. Um, and that I have found out that also um, they can use your medical insurance, which is MD labs. They don't have like everything that I'm looking for, but uh, usually based on my patient's history, what are their main symptoms and concerns? I could kind of discern like, how huh, we should probably look into Bartonella. We probably should look into Babesia. So I also make a decision of what test to order based on their symptoms. What is it? Igenix test, you said? Is that, is that a blood test based as well? It is a blood test. They have other, um, pretty much like a kit, like for like urine testing. Mm-hmm. I have found the urine testing that useful, honestly. Um, I know some some other doctors, they have used it and they have done like a provo- provocation test where they actually put a patient either on a herbal or antibiotic that would actually treat sort of the Lyme disease. They get them off and then after several days or weeks, they retest and that's kind of like call a provoke test. For mm. some that has been useful. I have personally not the done it, I go straight to serum or, or blood testing. So you get a patient in like the one you were talking about before, and you're able to get them to a point where they can tolerate the treatment. So what does that look like in terms of timeline for them actually feeling better? Can you cure this or put it into remission? Do you have patients who are better and have been better? And do they have to continue treatment? What does that look like for Lyme? Not everyone is the same. I mean, there are some people that are much more sicker than others, but I would say if somebody has a, you know, a good immune system, that's the only thing that they have, meaning that I haven't uncovered that they have like a heavy metal or mole, or they have SIBO, like gut issues, leaky gut. Um, I would say usually whenever you do the treatment, like the rule of thumb has been that usually like, for example, for things like Babesia, you can probably easy treat four to six months. Mm -hmm. Um, And then once they're better, you try to make sure that you don't stop the treatment until two months have passed of them been quote unquote better. Mm -hmm. And then you sort of kind of took take off the medications and they have been quote unquote cured, but there has been some cases where they even were treated for Lyme. They were fine for several years, meaning on no treatment or anything. They got COVID and they got another, like activated the Lyme activation uh, because they got long COVID and then you try to clear or tame down their immune system and help them out with the long COVID you do the testing and then you see the Lyme antibodies positive again. So you, then you try to treat that again. There's always potential for having triggers and people kind of having a reactivation of it. But in general, especially with the data shown by Dr. Horowitz with things like the Dapson protocol, there has been people in remission like over like a year or two years. I think he even was quoting on, on his own wife that he had treated and she several years without any signs of, you know, Lyme disease or Babesia or anything like that for infection. 
But in general, once I get them off the antibiotics, um, we can kind of certainly discuss about the possibility of retesting or not. Um, also, which my majority of patients, if they feel great, they don't they don't go into right retesting or the cost, but there's people that really want to know. Um, and then the other thing is that I try to give them some sort of like herbal support, mm. something that particularly would still manage their vector-borne illness. Uh, certain herbals, like I've used companies like Nutramedics, Beyond Balance. Go ahead. What specific kind of herbals um, are helpful in this, or does it just vary? Uh, I do like a lot of cryptolepis. Cryptolepis mm-hmm. is actually kind of like a tincture form. Yeah. It's actually widely used and even recently was in um, on research paper and actually managing Lyme disease, Bartonella, and even uh, the Babesia. Uh, we have even seen patients getting better just with the cryptolepis by itself. Wow. So it's an amazing herb and they have even done comparison with the usual, like even antibiotics. I have used pretty much antibiotics and crypto usually in the beginning for most of my patients. And then I try to kind of like keep them on something like crypto leptis for another six months or to a year or more because it's relatively safe and um, they do feel better. Uh, Some people also are kind of concerned of stopping everything because they feel so much better. Yeah. Or they have been treated by somebody else for their Lyme. They got better, but then I'm seeing them because they're not yet better because they kind of went back into having active for something that happened in their life or they got exposed to mold. So I have to kind of almost like retreat them. Isn't it interesting? These, um, you know, I'm thinking about these reactivation of how we're thinking about like long COVID you know, how things can kind of come back later. It's almost like the herpes viruses that are the gift that keeps on giving, right? The chronic fatigue, Epstein-Barr. I've had my Epstein-Barr panel done and we all have it in us, but I can tell when I get that chronic fatigue that kind of runs in my family, that's what we have. When we get stressed, when we're not taking care of ourselves, that's the herpes virus that gets activated in us. I've never had a cold sore. That's mine. And I just get that chronic fatigue. But I, it's really interesting that Lyme is, seems to work in a similar way. And I've, and I've read about COVID in interestingly, sort of doing that in a, in operating in a similar way where you think it's gone and then it's not, or it's coming back and it's showing up in different ways based on how we're taking care of the rest of our body almost, right? Like it is, it's almost forcing us to address the, the toxic burnout culture, <laughs> that it's so normalized and the toxic processed food, the overwork, the um, non-prioritizing of social ties and exercise and sunlight, right? It's almost just forcing us to say, you know, this isn't working. Right. It's your body screaming at you, right? I remember as, as a teenager too, when I would push it too hard and my body would just get sick. My body would just say, nope, it's going to make the choice for you. With your, you know, with your genetics too. If you have things that are your poor methylator or detox, um, because we see it on your genomics. If we try to work on that and giving you the substance or the vitamins or minerals, things that your body needs, I, I have seen people almost starting to get better even before I would actually add things like an antibiotic to, to treat their 
brucella for example or something like that yeah. so it's amazing how by just working on very little we've seen some major improvement even if yeah. able to do all the tests because i know a lot of patients are very skeptical or scared about going to a functional doctor for example because they're like oh my god i'm gonna be with bombarded with all of these tests and all of these labs and i don't have that money which I know there are certain practices that they want you to do all that before they even start working with you. I try to meet my patients halfway in the sense of, you know, ideally it would be great if we can have A, Y, and Z, you know, all the stuff, but clearly because of your finances, like I have even worked with patients that don't have insurance, health insurance. Yeah. And I have even gotten there. I don't know, like let's say a thyroid panel that probably insurance would would charge over like three hundred bucks, and I can get it for ten bucks when they they're paying cash. You know what I mean? So, yes, and- a lot of people don't know cash pay is often cheaper. You want to price that out. Exactly, exactly, and I think that's important for people to know that. And um, we try to work with them as much as we can. Yes, sometimes it is a cost being a member or joining a medical concierge practice, but you are getting like, most of my patients say this was actually well worth it of me. Oh of yeah. Investment for my, for my health and for myself. Well, um, and let's talk about the genomics a little bit. Cause this is where, when I think people do get a little bit overwhelmed with functional medicine and sometimes, you know, with the, the, you know, they're saying, Oh, I got to go pay $2,000 and poop in a bag and mail it off somewhere. And it's all these expensive tests and all these, they want me to buy all these supplements. What, what I love, or they're, you know, recommending this way of eating or that, and my neighbor's doing this and I don't know what to eat. I really appreciated the genomics portion. Um, and and I'll let you kind of define what genomics is a little bit more, but basically you're getting genetic testing that basically helps your physician inform your medical decisions. And what I have loved about it personally for me is that it allowed me not to throw spaghetti at the wall <laughs> in terms of just guessing as to what I remember bringing in like two huge bags of supplements to Sharon and her being like, oh, Sally, <laughs> like what are you doing? And we went through and I love it. It's beautiful. She's got two screens, right? You probably have the same thing. One screen facing the patient, your shared decision-making it's shared education. It's empowering. And so we sat there and went through my genomic profile and she was able to like, okay, this one, yes, you do need this one. Actually you don't based on, you know, I've been taking aspirin every day. Apparently I don't need to do that based on my genome. That's really helpful to know. Right. Um, you know, and so to, to really narrow it down and then to say, yes, these are the foods you, sh- you should be eating. Yeah, these ones, yeah, you probably are fairly carb intolerant because of all these type two diabetes genes, you know, right? Like, so being able to narrow that down and feel a little more confident about what you're doing and that it's okay if you're not doing what your neighbor's doing because you don't have their genes right. is extremely helpful. So how do you use that in practice? That's also how I got to meet Dr. Houseman Cohen during a retreat on my fellowship that I got to meet her, meet her and I was just so fascinated hearing the talk and I'm like man I really want to offer this tool for my patients um and then fast forward obviously I, I joined Resilient Health and got a chance to actually do it more and more um so medical genomics is pretty much the study of certain changes that occur in a gene, which usually are what we call SNPs, which is uh, single nucleotide polymorphism. Oftentimes, some of these can be significant. 
other times it's not. Uh, it would actually, just by these changes on the SNPs, you can actually have certain protein or enzyme that is working better or is working pretty poorly. Uh, for example, like the MTHFR, which we have several on that uh, particular pathway. So, which actually kind of translate into if you're homozygous, meaning you have two copies, one from mom, one from dad, that is actually occurring for the MTHFR, like uh, I believe it's like about 14% or 13% of the general population. So these are the patients that have a little bit of difficult time in getting that folate that they need from mm -hmm. their diet, from what they're eating or converting it into an active form, which I'm a big one. I do have that homozygous for MTHFR. Um, and once you try to implement certain changes, you're actually going to see, for example, on some of my patients that have had homozygous for that MTHFR, if they have a lot of like mental health issues, and I have actually given them uh, folate, folinic acid, and not bees, for example, they're on top of, let's say they're taking an SSRI or an antidepressant, they're actually getting better or just by itself. It was actually fascinating on the very first time that I used one of these tests was actually before I went into resilient health. I had this therapist where um, she did have the MTHFR. She was coming to me because she was like, I'm tired. I cannot sleep. I have taken so many stuff over the counter. I have even uh, taken prescription. I don't want to depend on prescription. Can you help me out? So after we try to like dive into her history, labs, hormones, everything else, quote unquote, was okay. Um, when we did the MTHFR testing, and I noticed that I just made the simple change about giving her a particular kind of medical grade type of supplement. Enlight? Yes, it was Enlight. So it's actually, she was actually able to sleep better. She was still taking just a, a little bit of the melatonin at night, but she was actually able to sleep the entire night. Wow. Worked like magic. And I'm only taking that in the morning. Like, oh my God, how is this happening? And, and I had to explain to her again about what happened with that. And also how much the, we need these kind of active B vitamins, folate to actually help our, our neurotransmitters especially on, you know, the serotonin to make you feel better, calm, relaxed. That's um, right. Because serotonin and melatonin are linked. What you need one to make another, right? Or yeah. Cause you need a uh, part of the uh, trip tryptophan HTP also ends up to converting into melatonin. Yeah. I forgot about that. I, yeah. And I did not know the effect of Enlight on sleep. Enlight, you guys, is a is methylfolate. It's it used to be a prescription. Now it's not. Um, and I take it as part of uh, being a patient of resilient health, also um, because I have some not not homozygous for MTHFR, but I think I have like one or some other combination that makes me need it. Um, but I didn't know that it helps with sleep. I just had read about that it was FDA approved to help with depression and mood and orders and cognition and all that. But what a great other side effect. I think everyone, woman my age is dealing with the insomnia of perimenopause and menopause. So if there's another potential root cause in the MTHFR, that's fascinating. Yeah. And especially if somebody, when, since you mentioned, yes, they've done the studies for mood issues, depression, and instead of when they did a head-to-head -head study, instead of adding a second agent, which a lot of, you know, doctors may do like, oh, you're not all the way control on your depression. We're going to add a second one. 
all that they needed was probably that second, you know, the methylfolate portion uh, of like something like the end line. That's what they did in the study with. And it was kind of fascinating that the people didn't need it and they were fine. It's just kind of like reinforce the, the prescription, for example. So in general, with medical genomics, we try to get like much more personalized and precision medicine. That's kind of like often what the names that we hear around in social media and all that. Um, it's kind of interesting how just based on a patient's medical genomics, I'm able to tell them like, you know, like what you were saying, you don't really need to be on this supplement or you really need this instead. So it has actually helped cut down on a lot of my patients that come with a laundry list of, of like one to two pages of supplements. You can save money. <laughs> you end up make, saving money. And not only that, that medical genome is so unique to you, meaning that it, it's one time thing. You don't have to repeat it because I even have that question. People asking me. No, and it's always updated. Every time I log into my Atelix uh, dashboard, it's just like 23andMe, except for you guys, 23andMe is not HIPAA protected, okay? You get your genomics through Intellix DNA, through your doctor, it's HIPAA protected. So keep, just keep that in mind. Um, so, but yes, it's still, it automatically updates the same way when you go into 23andMe, but it'll update, but it'll also try to upcharge you to see the new updates. No, you've already paid for your IntelliX DNA and you get on and I open my new, and it'll tell me, yes, this is your new report. They've added something to it. It's fascinating. It, it, it is. And it's kind of interesting how, because we have, our report keeps growing and growing, mm -hmm. especially because Dr. Hausman Cohen and her team with IntelliX DNA they always are updating, doing the research and spend so many long hours in kind of bringing all valid research, which when you sign up as a practitioner, for example, you get that clinician version, you're actually able to see the research paper where they're actually obtaining the data, which is actually very important because sometimes people might think that we're like making this up. <laughs> we're not making it up. It's, there's actually research behind it. And this is why we're recommending it. Like I know my my father, even though he's he was cardiologist, he always suffered with a lot of like heart disease issues. And he had also uh, arterial calcification. So I sort of had the suspicion that, oh, I might end up having same issues as my father. And then when I actually was able to do my own genomics, that's how I learned the first time several years back when I started doing my own, um, I noticed that I did have the arterial calcification one, which was homozygous. And I'm like, oh, so I need to stay on top of it now, get my vitamin K, K2 with my vitamin yes. C for prevention. No calcium, B D3, K2, yes. Exactly. And just to keep monitoring at a younger age, so I don't end up doing like the many stents that he ended up having. Uh, he also has a pacemaker. So all those things I can try to do ahead of time to prevent. Yes. So that's exactly what we're doing when we do medical genomics for our patients. We give you the tools because there's a famous saying out there, you know, genetics loads the gun, your lifestyle pulls the trigger. So if you know what you need to do now, that's amazing. You can actually help prevent cardiovascular issues, cognitive decline, uh, autoimmune issues. Like if you have all those SNPs that are related to gluten, you can actually develop autoimmune issue. So oh, yeah. 
get on top of it now. You get one autoimmune disease, the likelihood of getting another and another and another raises exponentially. And you guys, I think um, for those of you out there who might be new to the idea of genetic testing or genomics, or how that informs your medical care, keep in mind that a very high percentage, 99% or something like that, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, of genes are not destiny or determinative, I suppose, right? In that I mean, if you have the gene, that means no matter what, you are getting this X disease. Mo the vast majority of our genes are can simply be turned on or turned off based on diet, lifestyle, and environmental changes that we do have control over. And so it's actually super empowering to have that information, the earlier, the better. And I know I started later around 40, but I feel like I'm so much better now than I would have been if I had not had that information. I think a lot of people are scared. They put their head in the sand, right? They're like, I don't wanna know. There's nothing I can do. Um, there's so much you can do. There is, there is. And even before I knew, for example, on mine that I had the MTHFR, when I was going through that period that I told you earlier about the burnout, got separated and all that, and went for divorce, I was, uh, I had, I had started taking even an SSRIs to help to cope with the depression, everything else that I was going through. I met with a integrative psychiatrist. And he was the first person who started mentioning, talking to me about this MTHFR thing. And he said like, yeah, if you want to actually wean yourself off of the SSRI, try to take some SAMI, the supplement. Mm -hmm. He recommended me the whole like B vitamins, combination folinic acid, which back then I was using something else. It wasn't the end light. Uh, and I was like night and day difference. I was able to successfully wean off. I was feeling great. I was fine. So I was kind of literally giving the bot my body what it needed. And, and now I don't I don't use nope. any. So Me I'm neither. and great. And yeah, I, I'm like you. I'm using my my N-Live. I mean, I do other things in terms of, you know, with meditation, et cetera, and other practices just to just kind of cope with everything and help. And obviously I'm a big, big um fan of people going to do their therapy. And then obviously for my severe patients, sometimes I do have to start them on some form of SSRIs, but I try to do that in terms to control, but then eventually try to sort of wean them off or incorporating other forms of therapy to mm -hmm. get their genomics of one, what other things they might need that I can start recommending them so they can eventually be more successful manage their mental health and then be probably wean off these prescription if needed. And that's what I love about functional medicine. You guys, it's not functional med medicine is not an either, or it, it is never a, attempted to be that it is a both and more um, proposition, right? Functional medicine is looking to treat the root cause, but all functional medicine MDs are doctors. They right. went to medical school. They are well-versed in all of the conventional medical treatments and pharmaceutical treatments. It's just that they have, most of them either through their own health journey or being frustrated by treating patients who are not getting better over and over again, have eventually gone back for additional training to learn how to treat the root cause of disease, you know, through genomics, through diet, lifestyle, nutrition, through the correct supplements, through, you know, avoiding toxins, treating underlying infection and uh, disease so that we're not then burdening ourselves again with additional pharmaceuticals that are not necessarily really needed and can cause other issues, as many people have found. You know, there's there's not a pharmaceutical out there without side effects, right? And then right. you end up with polypharmacy with 
Yeah, you know, I'm not against like pharmaceuticals, but because of my knowledge now, I'm able to handle those things a little bit better. Right. Um, and I always, I'm very honest and blunt with my patients in terms of like, I'm sorry, this is not going to be able to handle with an herbal. You need to do this. <laughs> right. You have a staph infection. It's time for antibiotics. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah. So I kind of try to incorporate both therapies, right? As much as yeah. I can. Tell me about a little more. I know on um, you have talked pretty candidly on Instagram about your own health journey and, you know, dealing with chronic pain. Um, what have you found with like, and especially with the chronic pain and the chronic migraines, those are really common among women are like, I know you're much younger than I am. I'm 50. I don't know if you want to share your age or not, but that's, those are things that are super common that I see in my coaching clients. Um, I would love to hear you talk about that. I was going through some difficult time for the last year and a half or so. Um, I have been visiting several specialists, uh, ortho, neurologist, rheumatologist, um, even gynecology. And, and obviously like my orthopedics try to help me out as much as possible, giving me, you know, injections in the knees, PRP. I mean, I've done everything. Uh, even the rheumatologist, um, she was kind of telling me, you know, I, I don't know what to tell you because your labs, everything else is normal, but you are behaving like somebody has an autoimmune issue. Hmm. And I was like, and she's like, well, come and see me in another six months and we'll see where we at and repeat labs. And I was like, okay, then. Um, with a neurologist, uh, I was getting more of that chronic migraine in the beginning. You know, people always think that it's like, oh, it's probably because of so much stress, um, lack of sleep. You know, I'm a physician, I'm busy, I'm a mom. I got put into with uh, a pharmaceutical drug to prevent migraines where I was getting um, monthly injections. Mm. And also taking something different in terms of when I have an acute attack. Mm. sort of calm down but in the same time I was visiting also the chiropractor very often because of severe neck pain that was also triggering my migraine mm. pretty much miserable because I kept telling even my own husband like I'm getting tired that I have pain here then I'm not able to sleep. I'm getting migraines. I'm getting knee pain. Then I started having a left foot pain. But even though me as a physician, knowing all these tools, I started incorporating a lot of things alternatively. I read yeah. some sauna. They were actually making me feel better. And I'm, <laughs> okay, that way I don't have to recur so much to actually prescription to treat my pain. Because mm -hmm. even the last, uh, one of the doctors that I saw, they literally told me, you know, you're going to have to probably go to pain management. And I'm like, I don't want to be prescription narcotic. Like, I don't, that, I don't want my life to be like that through going into learning all the stuff about Lyme disease. Yeah. I got into, I got a free test, which is the Lyme immunoblot biogenics. Oh, and at the same time I did my Horowitz screening, which when the first time when I did it was like a 43 my score was 43, 46. And I'm like, well, it's right there. Maybe it's nothing. I, I shouldn't worry about this. Fast forward, when I did the Lyme immunoblot biogenics, I was actually traveling to our family vacation. Uh, we went to Asia. I've always been kind of sensitive to mold. 
Mm. Um, we also had that issue also here in our home, mm-hmm. taking binders and things like that. But I got exposed in South Korea to an Airbnb that was full of black mold. <laughs> I got swollen lymph glands. I was even having low grade fever. I was sore throat. I honestly thought I was having COVID that I even tested myself. I immediately thought that it was the mold because as we moved to another country, I felt 10 times better. But while I was there, I got the email notification with my results. And it was actually unequivocal positive, which there was something there. And when I actually was I was like, automatically, I started to send an email and reaching out to Dr. Houseman Cohen. And she was like, well, you have you thought about testing for like Bartonella? And I'm like, huh, that makes a lot of sense. I don't know why I didn't think about it. So when I got home, I actually tested for the EVV panel, which I never did. I was actually having a reactivation of EVV. And there. Exactly. That early antigen, everything else was like out of whack, super high. And I started treating that and I started to feel somewhat better, but not all the way. Uh, I was getting a whole lot more migraines and things like that when I came back home. And when I managed to do the whole hygienics panel for the other portion of like Babesia, tick relaxing fever, the full Lyme bands, and then Bartonella, my Bartonella antibodies were high and were present. When I did my Horowitz screening, my score was like 75 and I was like, this makes a whole lot of sense of what I've been going through. Wow. Um, I got in touch with a very good friend of mine who I met through the ILATS. Uh, she's also another line literate doctor. We're going to have to start you on something, especially with all your symptoms and what you've been going through for the last year and a half. It was a struggle because I started doing like something more alternative, which is ozone therapy, which can be a little bit controversial not much into there's a lot of studies done and research like in Europe but not so much here because it's not considered like FDA regulated but I was like willing to try anything because I was in a point in my life that I was about to quit my job I was like if I don't get any better I cannot take an FMLA I don't know what to do should I take time off and then come back I don't want to do that to my patients can I cut my hours? I, um, but through the journey of getting treated and even starting on antibiotics, which I'm currently on, combination mm. of two antibiotics, I am feeling like night and day difference. Wow. Great day, sleeping great. Um, even my migraines completely gone. We um, stopped all the medications only taking like if I need something for an acute still have that just in case uh oh I was getting a lot of like um motion sickness and dizziness which that was brand new to me I really struggle really struggle with it and now I'm not suffering with that but for six months or so I was always having like a nausea like vertigo I had that for years it was mainly while I was on the birth control pill, which I think affected so many other things in my health that, that were downstream. Interesting. Our, our bodies can respond differently to, to different type of drugs or, or medications. Yeah. 
I still um, obviously uh, seen my my Lyme literate doctor friend to help me out. Um, but thankfully, I'm, I've been so happy and grateful that I found that this is the major issue. So Bartonella can be caused by cat scratch, sometimes called cat scratch fever. Uh, there has been cases, since it's a vector-borne disease, there has been cases even like from like insect bites, like mosquito, uh, spider, or even like the, the an actual, you know, tick bite. Um, the only time that I was exposed to a tick bite was actually one time when I went out. I think the only time that I did like a very rough traditional camping in Louisiana, um, several years back when I was kind of like finishing my residency and all that, that was the only recollection that I have. But the reality mm -hmm. is you don't always have the bullseye rash only occurs in 30% of the cases. And sometimes there's even like the nymphs that can be so, so like a tiny, tiny little dot that you barely could see that sometimes can easily be transmitting, uh, a disease, right. Transmitting something. And mm -hmm. I actually grew up with exposed to many like infectious diseases back in my country because there's always a lot of like parasite i even got toxo when i was a kid um is this cats. <laughs> yeah that's the one from that you get from like cats uh, yeah like you don't worry about in pregnancy mm -hmm. yeah i used to have like a lot of um my grandma had a lot of like cats that were a little bit more feral that were kind of like more outside than inside the house. And I did too, growing up in Texas, like tons of. <laughs> I love, I love cats. Uh, back then I was always around it, but yep. anyways, it's kind of hard to discern what potentially may have been the cause. But all I can say is that by, you know, having a, a clear explanation, which is kind of characteristic with people having either Lyme or Bartonella, like Lyme can be very distinguished about having the migratory pain, which mm -hmm. is kind of like you have a pain in the shoulder, then three days later, you have a knee, wow. it kind of shifts. And also Bartonella can cause more um, issues affect the connective tissue. So oh. a lot of patients can have issues like along the lines of having tendon problem, arthritis, um, hypermobility syndrome, having EDS, like an underlying EDS, and then you got Bartonella is such the worst combination ever because those are the people that are going to be suffering the most, which I always was diagnosed with hypermobility when I was a younger age. So it's kind of like one of those things could have been the Bartonella that caused that or already have, I do have a certain sniff in the genomics that does show that I am having a tendency for hypermobility. You can always have the genetics, but on top of that, you can have an infection that can kind of make matter worse. So yeah. uh, at my young age, which you, you asked me earlier, I'm 41. Uh, when I visited one time an orthopedist, he said, you know, you're so young to have knee replacement. So you, we're going to have to do this this way about getting injections ever so often steroid injection. I'm like, I cannot be coming here just to get steroid injection. Um, Which we know is just kind of a bandaid, right? And it weakens the the tissues actually ultimately. Right. And you're that's just all that they had to offer me at, at my age, uh, because I've done therapy. I mean, I've done, I watch out what I do with my exercise and things like that. You um, know what I've seen, and this is crazy. If a woman is over the age of 35 
and she's got insomnia, anxiety, and joint pain, chronic pain, or inflammation, if they get on oral micronized progesterone, even if it's just the last two weeks of their cycle, I have seen that stuff. Oh, and migraines. Mm-hmm. I have seen that disappear because of the, I, and it's, and I've seen like antibodies go down. I've seen, I, and I've, you know, I've been doing the lab analysis and coaching for like 15 years. And that's one that I, it's like a constellation. You know, when you start doing things long enough, you just start to see like over and over again, this pattern of we're not ovulating every month anymore. And so we have less progesterones. We're having more inflammation, more estrogen dominance, more histamine intolerance, feeling itchy from the inside out, chronic pain, migraines. And then it seems like if they can just, they're not menopausal yet. So no one's thinking hormones, but the micro dosing of that progesterone that lasts during the luteal phase. I mean, I don't know if anyone's even like it brought that up. I have um, um, progesterone for sure. I, I do yeah. like to use my progesterone. I, and more yeah. now when I reach my forties, I do see a much more need. Uh, I often though, when I see like a woman coming in with hormonal issues, I have seen even with people with chronic infections like this, yeah. seeing a young girl in her early twenties, just having like in the dirt, all her hormones, almost like behaving like somebody that is in menopause and it's because of the infection. And then I've seen also the opposite where they're having uh, more of that estrogen dominance and we need to bring those down a bit. Uh, but a great majority, I do see like they need more of their hormonal uh, support when they're having these other co-infections or even like heavy metal, toxin, mold, toxicity, all those kind of things can actually affect your hormones and how your hormones behave in your body. Oh yeah. When I'm estrogen dominant, I am just itchy and poofy and I get eye eczema when my progesterone is too low and my estrogen is too high, which right now I'm just, that's perimenopause, right? My estrogen's going like this. <laughs> right. right. Progesterone is kind of going down. Once I uh, discovered that I got this infection, um, yeah. it's been kind of like more smooth sailing, but when the cycle, and this is something that my Lyme litter doctor uh friend told me yes during your cycle of the month yeah your your pain your migraines everything is gonna get your fatigue because that was the worst for me the fatigue trying to getting out from the bed and trying to work uh definitely much more moody anxiety depression so everything was kind of much worse for me but who would believe that me getting in the appropriate therapy uh, even though I'm doing antibiotics where I'm doing other things to kind of help protect my gut. Yeah. That I would be actually thriving right now and, and, and doing so much better. Well, treating the underlying cause of the infection is also going to help your body and your hormones work better, right? Your bodies are going to detect stress. We are very sensitive as women because we have babies. Our bodies are going to say, you're under stress. You've got inflammation, an underlying infection, a tick-borne illness we're not going to maybe ovulate right now. This is not the best time to have a baby. Well, then we end up with low progesterone, which makes it worse, right? So it's like a chicken and an egg situation. So I can see that, how it would just, you finally find how satisfying that would be to finally find the underlying cause and treat that and then have everything, all the other dominoes sort of fall in the right direction finally. 
Okay. I have taken up so much of your time today and I could just talk to you forever. Just to wrap up, I just wanted to tell everybody how to get in touch with you. Um, Dr. Pichardo is available for appointments at Resilient Health Austin in Austin, Texas. You can meet with her by telemedicine or in person. Um, and she can do appointments in English and in Spanish. Um, she is also on Instagram at dr.gabriela underscore p-i-c-h-a-r-d-o, dr.gabriela underscore Pichardo on Instagram. Highly recommend you follow her. She is just a bright ray of sunshine. So just a positive person, but also loads of information on your own medical journey. Um, Dr. Pichardo, thank you so much for being on the I Love Labs podcast. Thank you for having me, Sally. And this is actually the very first time that I actually open up about saying what I had because, you know, you're always as a doctor, sometimes skeptical about announcing in the world. It, it's manageable. Yes, sometimes it kind of sucks when you find out that you have that type of infection. But wow. once you find out what's been truly affecting you for so long is such a like a relief especially when you're able to tackle things now better I think that just makes you so many people go to the doctor and they just are told something is all in their heads or they're not really getting anywhere and I think that's the difference between someone you know a doctor like you who's been through it herself I think that's the last way you would ever treat a patient um and yeah I've seen you I think once in the in the office for something and I just loved you I just thought you were just um you listen uh, you're brilliant um and and you make people better and what else do we need <laughs> thank you so much Sally thank you and happy Thanksgiving and go enjoy the rest of this holiday with your family so appreciate you take care thank you all so right much. bye bye